Well, good morning, Cornerstone. It's a joy to be with you. I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I was uh, kind of going over the message yesterday in review and thought, you know what, I should check to see what has Pastor Lynn been preaching lately to make sure I don't overlap. And I saw that he's preaching through Romans, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> but I said, oh, he's only in chapter 5, so it'll take a while before he gets here, and this is the kind of passage that we all need reminders of, so I'm sure when he gets here, uh, he'll, as, of course, in the, in the course of sequential exposition, sometimes you handle a passage differently than if you're just jumping into to a particular passage. But I thought it would be still good to, to keep going. Plus, there wasn't any other message that I had ready to go. So. <laughs> well, it's a unique privilege for me and my family uh, to be here and to be asked to speak on the occasion of Alex's ordination as a deacon. It was 18 years ago that he and Barbara were attending a fellowship of believers who were gathering together, uh, looking at starting a new church, having guest speakers visit week after week. And uh, my wife and I, at the time, were engaged and attending another church in town. And uh, a few months later, uh, we were married and we started to join that fellowship. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it only lasted a few months before we moved out of state. But over the years, it's been encouraging to see how the Lord has developed and grown and strengthened this body, uh, despite the high turnover that you experience here for all the reasons that people come and go out of Ridgecrest. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And one of the ways that he builds his church, according to Ephesians 4, is he gifts leaders to his church. And so it's not necessarily our job to determine who is going to be a leader. It's more our job to recognize whom Christ has gifted as leaders in his church. But it's not just leaders who are gifted to the church. Every person saved by Jesus Christ is a gift to the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each of you, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, are purposefully placed into the body of Christ for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. One of the challenges that churches in transitory places uh, like Ridgecrest and like where we live in Columbia, Maryland experience is that because people uh, often know that they're not going to be there very long, maybe a year, maybe up to three years, uh, they tend to be there tends to be a hesitancy to get involved. They kind of hang back and, and don't plug in as much as they could or should. There is a hesitancy to engage in relationships, knowing that in a short time those relationships, whatever they have, are going to be uh, ripped apart. There's a reluctance to get involved in ministry, knowing that in some short period of time, if when they leave, there's going to be a hole in that ministry. This isn't always the case, of course, but it's common uh, here and where we live. And we have a, a joint military base just down the street from our house. Uh, the NSA, NASA, and, and a host of other government organizations are just uh, within 15 minutes of where we live. And, uh, of course, in the broader re region, we're just 40 minutes from Washington, D.C. And so there's people constantly coming 
in and out of the area. We've been at our church less than three years, but we've already seen a, a good number of people come and go as a result of these things. So this dynamic can make it easier to adopt more of a spectator attitude toward the church. I'm just going to be here for a little bit, so I'm just going to attend, uh, do my time at my work, and then someday move on somewhere else. But even where this dynamic isn't in place, it's very common for churches to be described by the ratio that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And during the last year and a half with COVID, that's that ratio has probably gotten a lot worse as many people across the country have stayed away from church even when they didn't need to in terms of uh, formal restrictions. And while most churches no longer have to deal with restrictions, after such long period of time, they're having to contend with what you could call involvement hesitancy. Forget vaccine hesitancy, whether you get the vaccine or not has no impact on eternity. But involvement hesitancy hinders the church of Jesus Christ from moving forward in accomplishing Christ's purposes for the church in the world. It prevents people, people from having those evangelistic conversations that they need to have or being involved in the discipleship ministry that they should be. This should not be. When Christ grants us eternal life and thus removes the fear of death, there is nothing that should hinder us from engaging to the fullest degree possible in the life of the church. It's been said that when Christ saves us, he saves us into his body. He grafts us into the body of Christ in such a way that we become a vital and essential member of that body and what Christ is doing on this earth. And so it's imperative for us to understand what our role is as believers in the life of the body of Christ. So if you're there in Romans 12, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's go before the Lord and commit this message to him. Our Father, we thank you for this time of worship that we not only worship with uh, our voices, 
singing songs of praise, but now we worship you with our hearts as we hear the, the preaching of your word. We know that apart from you, we can do nothing, and we are entirely dependent on your Holy Spirit to understand the truth and to know how it ought to apply to our lives. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take my own feeble words and accomplish your purposes in each life that is here. Would you encourage us? Would you instruct us? Would you exhort us? And would you bring about the change that you desire so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ for his glory, we pray. Amen. Well, there are four main passages in the Bible that deal with spiritual gifts. Uh, there's 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which, as you probably know, deals with uh, the, the miraculous gifts at length. Uh, there is Ephesians chapter 4, and then 1 Peter 4, and then our text. That's one of the ways you can remember it. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, very similar chapters. It's amazing how Peter and Paul really collated with themselves in that way. That's kind of a joke that they didn't have chapters back then. That repetition gives us some indication, though, of how significant spiritual gifts are. That there would be four different occasions and four different letters given out to the churches that would have these truths in them. In fact, 1 Peter and Ephesians in particular are letters that were not just written to one particular church, but letters that were distributed among a wide swath of churches in various areas of that world. But what really screams the importance of understanding the connections between salvation and spiritual gifts or your role in the body of Christ is the placement of, these pass- of this passage right here in Romans 12. Paul's letter to the church has been called his magnum opus, the epitome of theological treatises. It's without a doubt the most dense theological and practical letter Paul wrote. It is, if you will, the stake in the 66th course of the meal of God's word. The first 11 chapters are a full and rich exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And from there, it's as if Paul is pulled along by a magnetic force to preach the gospel to these believers, to the Christians who are at Rome. And so that's what he does for 11 chapters. He he writes kind of like a a skilled gemologist who is carefully and and, uh, in great detail describing one facet of the beautiful diamond of the gospel uh, each chapter as he moves along. He begins in chapter 1 with the wrath of God that is coming to those who've turned away uh, from that God who reveals himself through creation. In verses 29 to 31, as you may recall when Pastor Lynn preached that section, he gives 21 characteristics of sinful man that demonstrate that if man deserves anything, it is the wrath of God. And then he turns his attention to those who are self-righteous in chapter 2 those who abhor sinners and those who follow the law. And he says that they too will not escape the judgment of God. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath 
and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Those who have the law of God are blessed because they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. But having and hearing the law of God does nothing but condemn a person. If one wants to be right in God's sight, they must perfectly obey that law. And that's something that no one can do. Paul says there is none righteous, not even one in chapter 3. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. The law can't save anyone because no one can keep it perfectly. The law is there to reveal our sinfulness and our need for someone other than ourselves to remove the wrath of God. So how does one get justified? How can one be declared innocent if not righteous in God's sight? And the answer is, it is by faith. In chapter 4, Paul recounts how Abraham was justified by faith, not on, on the basis of works, the fact that he obeyed God, but rather that he believed God. And therefore, if we want to be righteous, if we want to escape that wrath of God, we cannot do it by our own good works, but only by believing in the promises of God. And specifically in chapters 4 and 5, our faith is to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us while we were still sinners, who was buried and rose again. The first Adam brought sin and death into the world. The second Adam, who is Christ, brings life to those who believe. The wonder of the gospel is that salvation is not based on me and my decisions or my actions. Rather, it's based on Christ, who lived the perfect life that we could not live, who died the unjust death that he did not deserve, and who rose again, demonstrating that the Father accepted his sacrifice and his power over death. He paid the penalty that sinners deserve and he imparts to us his righteousness when we believe on him. Then we learn in chapter 6 that having faith and receiving life frees us from the power of sin and it enables us to obey God. Not to earn his favor because we already have that in Christ but because to do otherwise is to wallow in death. And then in chapter 7, there's that reminder that while we still live in this body of flesh, we are still infected with that curse of sin. And so even though we might want to do what is right, we cannot be perfect. And it's only when we see Christ face to face that we will totally be eradicated from sin. But even when we sin, chapter 8 proclaims to us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Though we live in this body of death, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and imparts to us the life of God, which enables us to overcome sin and endure suffering. And then in chapters 9 to 11, Paul deals with the question of God's purposes for his people, Jews and Gentiles. The, the mystery of the gospel is that Gentiles, those who are non-Jews, are included in the people of God. But that does not mean that God's purposes for national Israel 
are nullified. All Israel will be saved, but they won't be saved until the, the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. And once that full number comes in, then all Israel will be saved, Paul says, and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. Now, having considered that vast swath of, swath of truth, that beautiful diamond, Paul concludes by exploding into an anthem of praise over this precious jewel. And you can see this in verse 33 of chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. After such an exhilarating, God-exalting meditation on the gospel, on display, what is left to say. Paul could have ended his letter right there and left all believers just in awe and wonder over the work of God through Christ. But he doesn't stop there. What does he say next? Well, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, on the basis of all that God has done for us in Christ, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, all the theology, all the doctrine, all of the truth that, that is explained in chapters 1 through 11 has a mandate for your life, a mandate for your life, namely that you are to give your life in sacrifice to God. That means that you are to die to yourself. That's what a sacrifice does. It dies. You're to die to the selfish desires that have ruled your life as an unbeliever. You are to die, in our case, to the American dream that you've worked so hard for. You are to die to the world's system of priorities and rights and morals and goals. And you are to do that in order to live. To truly live. To live a life of worship to the God who rescued you and redeemed you and saved you and forgave you and gave you life. This is what Paul means in verse 36 there of chapter 11 when he says... For from, in, from him and through him and to him are all things. In chapters 1 to 11, Paul explains to us how everything is from God and through God for his glory. And what follows is an explanation of how we are to live to God for his glory. What does such a life look like? Well, that's what's described in chapters 12 to 16. But notice what comes first. After, again, exploring the glories of the gospel and saying, now there is a mandate for your life. Notice what he talks about as the first aspect of what it means to live a life in sacrifice to God. The first thing that comes to Paul's mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is what it means to live in relationship to others who share this kind of life. 
If you want to know what God's will is for your life, in light of what God has done for us and in us, we need to understand this matter of life in the body of Christ so that we can live it out. So with God's help, that's what we're going to do by studying verses 3 to 8 today. The text before us in verses 3 to 8 breaks down into three parts. These are the three duties of the Christian when it comes to life in the body of Christ. Three duties of every Christian when it comes to the life in the body of Christ. First, you are to have a right view of yourself. Have a right view of yourself. Second, you are to have a right view of the church. Have a right view of the church. And third, in light of those two, serve the church faithfully. We'll walk through those. So let's begin with the first one. Have a right view of yourself. Look at verse 3 of chapter 12 there. Again, Paul writes, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. There's a bit of a play on words here, which the NASB mostly preserves. You can see the infinitive to think repeated three times there, but it should be four. The infinitive to have sound judgment should or could be translated to think soberly or to think reasonably. So obviously here in verse 3, the emphasis is on your thinking and in particular on your thinking about how you view yourself. There is a warning and there's a command about how we are to assess ourselves. He says, don't think of yourself too highly, but instead think of yourself properly. Why does he identify this aspect of how you should think about yourself? It's simply this, because how you think about yourself will determine how you live your life. How you think about yourself will determine how you live your life. On the negative side, things like pride and arrogance and anger and laziness and discouragement. Or on the positive side, things like humility, meekness, gratitude, hard work, persistence. All of these kinds of things are influenced by how you think about yourself in relationship to others. You know that in our culture, it's still thought of that we are to have a high view of ourselves, right? That we are to have high esteem, self-esteem. The culture says that many of the problems people have is because they don't have enough self-esteem. The remedy to many of the problems, people will say, is to increase your self-esteem. You see that person in the mirror when you get up in the morning? You tell them how it is. You say to yourself, I'm smart. I'm beautiful. I'm good at what I do. I deserve the best things in life. Through positive thinking, they say, you can improve your life and decrease the problems. But each one of us is told here by God not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Picture in your mind a gauge here. This is one of those gauges where maybe the low end is, has a background of yellow, and then you have the, the middle range, which has a white background, and then the high range, which has a red background. We're not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think reasonably and appropriately. To have sound judgment, he says. 
And that means to think in moderation or perhaps to think seriously about yourself. And what should moderate our thinking? It's what he says there at the end of the verse. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In other words, our attitude about ourselves should be consistent with the spiritual gifts that God has given us. Again, don't think too highly about yourself, but think moderately, think soberly, think seriously. Notice that there is no warning about thinking too little of yourself. (laughs) We don't have that problem, do we? Often what appears to be low self-esteem is actually an expression of pride. When a person says, I hate myself, I hate my life, what they actually mean is, I deserve too good. I deserve better things than what I'm getting uh, from life. My, my rights and my hopes and my expectations aren't being fulfilled, and therefore I'm angry at the world because I love myself too much. I love myself too much to be upset at what is going on, that I, that I must be upset at what is going on in my life. No, we don't have a problem with thinking lowly, too lowly of ourselves. Our problem is not thinking lowly enough. When it comes to life in the body of Christ, there are two common ways that pride manifests itself. Now, this isn't explicit in this text, but Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 12. The the first and most obvious is to overestimate your importance. This is how we think too highly of ourselves, to overestimate our importance. Paul talks about that even in chapter 11 there of Romans with regard to Gentile pride, with Gentiles thinking, ha, we're better than the Jews. No, don't think that God saved you because he needs you. Don't think that when you entered the kingdom of God and you walked through those gates, if you will, that somehow everybody's like, whoa, God saved that person. That's amazing. Anyone who thinks the church is dependent on them would do well to consider that God has already appointed your day to die. You are not overly important to God. This is the person who serves tirelessly, partially out of joy and a desire to serve, but also because they feel like they're the best one for the job. No one else can do it as good as they can. So, hey, if you want it done right, do it yourself. They essentially believe that the success of the ministry, whether it's a particular ministry within the church or the ministry of the church as a whole, is dependent on them. Paul refers to this kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. What he's saying there is we tend to look at the parts that are more visible, that are, that are up front, the people that are up front leading and speaking and singing, and say, those are the important people. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 is, no, that's not true at all. The people up front, sure, they have importance, but they are not the most important. No one ought to think they are more important than others. The second manifestation of pride in Christ's body is the one who determines they don't need the body and the body doesn't need them. This is the self-sufficient person who determines they don't need the other parts of the body to be healthy. This is the person who doesn't feel that desperate need to be plugged in to the life of the body. It's a subtle form of pride. It's this thinking that as long as I have Jesus, I'm good. 
I'll be just fine. I don't need to establish relationships with people in the church. I don't need to let people into my life. I don't need to get involved in the lives of others. Jesus and I are quite sufficient on our own. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. In other words, what, lie, what underlies this reasoning is, if God wanted me to be a more in, integral and important part of the body, he would have made me different. He would have given me a better singing voice or a better speaking voice or he would have made me smarter or he would have given me different skills. Therefore, because the church doesn't fit what I think is needed, then it must not need me and I don't need them. Do you see those two expressions of pride? One is I'm needed too much and the other is they don't need me and I don't need them. One is a hand who doesn't think he needs the feet because he can do handstands all the way down the road. The other one is a foot who thinks he can walk across the street without a body. With Paul, I would plead with you to check your own heart to ensure that you're not thinking too highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think seriously about your role in the body of Christ. And what is your role? Well, that's duty number two. Have a right view of the church. Have a right view of the church. Look at verses four and five. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. First, you must have a right view of yourself, and second, you must have a right view of the church. I trust that this is not your view, but I think the most common view in our day and age is that the church is where you go on Sundays to listen to mediocre musicians and maybe sing along yourself and then listen to someone talking, hoping that you'll feel better about yourself by the end of the service. We know this is a common view because many churches can be modeled like this. You have kind of the inner circle of people who are actively engaged in the life of the church. They're serving in a variety of ways, not necessarily overly so, but they're just, they're engaged, they're, they're building relationships, they're meeting needs. And then there's a larger portion of the church where people just come and go. Some of those people come on Sundays, every Sunday. Some of those people come twice a year on Christmas and Easter. But what characterizes them is they just come and go. They don't engage in relationship. They don't serve. They don't, they don't get themselves involved in the lives of others. They are spectators. But my friends, church is not a spectator sport. The right view of the church is to think of it like a body. And you see that here in, in how Paul describes the church. He uses this concept of the body to illustrate what the church is like. Your body has many members, and we implicitly understand this illustration. We have eyes and ears and nose and mouth and arms and legs and hands and fingers and toes, and that's just the outside parts. And every part of the body plays a unique and complex set of roles in serving the rest of the body. In most of the things that we do, our whole body is involved. When we walk, our eyes are looking to where we're going. Our hands are moving opposite to our legs for balance. 
We're listening for potential dangers that might be coming. When we talk, we're watching the listener for nonverbal cues to make sure that they're tracking with us. We're using our facial expressions, our muscles, and our hands for nonverbal communication to, to express what, our, what we're meaning with our words. Our body is a unified whole made up of diverse parts that all work together in what it does. And so it is with the church. There are three aspects of the church that Paul describes here. First, we are one body. You see that? For just as we are many members in one body, we are one body. This is the unity of the church. All who profess faith in Christ... Believing the true gospel are part of the one body of Christ. There is not a single person whom God has saved who is outside of that body. No, every true believer is part of the one body of Christ. There are no spare parts. Don't ever think of yourself as a spare part, an unnecessary piece. When God saves you, he immediately grafts you into the vine. And while we can act like we're disconnected, we cannot show up, we cannot get involved, we cannot engage in relationships. The truth is, we can't actually disconnect ourselves. And just acting like we're disconnected only brings harm to us and harm to the body. Secondly, not only are we one body, we are many members many members. This is diversity. Every member of the body of Christ is unique. You know, you have 10 fingers, but every finger is unique. Each of your thumbs is unique from one another. Each of your fingers is utterly unique from all the other fingers. Diversity is not found in the official tasks and roles that that are fulfilled in the body of Christ. Diversity is found in the people who fulfill those tasks and roles. Every person who teaches a Sunday school class does it in their own unique way. They bring their own gifts, their own skills, their own weaknesses to that task of teaching a Sunday school class. Same thing with leading a small group Bible study or preaching or music. We're all doing similar things, but we're doing it in a unique way because we are diverse. Our education, our life experience, our background, our spiritual maturity... Everything about us makes us a unique instrument in the Redeemer's hands. So there is unity, there is diversity, and third, there is mutuality. You can see that in verse 5. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are members one of another. This is mutuality. You and I have two lungs in our chests. But if one of those lungs stops working, the other one has to work overtime. Every wounded soldier quickly finds that it doesn't matter what the injury is. It doesn't matter what body part you lose. It affects the whole body. Every part has to compensate for that loss. By virtue of the fact that we are one body of Christ, we are inescapably connected to one another. What affects you affects me. When one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts. When one part rejoices, the rest of the body should rejoice. When one part of the body weeps, the rest of the body should weep. 
there is a depth of unity in the body of Christ that far exceeds every, and I really mean every other human relationship. All other human relationships can, can be broken or torn apart. But, and, and even the best relationships end the moment one party dies. But once God sets his love and his mercy and his grace on you, once he forgives you and redeems you and makes you his child, once, once he places you into the body of which he is the head, you are in the body and you are a member of that body for eternity. And so we will always be members of one another. So the church is not just a place where you attend because you enjoy the music, you like the teaching, you get something out of it, you enjoy the people. It's not a club you join and go to the meetings when it's convenient. It's not an extracurricular activity that you participate in more or less depending on what else is on your schedule. The church is the body of Christ and you are but one of many members. And because of your God-ordained membership in the body of Christ, you have a duty and a responsibility to serve the body faithfully. And these are not responsibilities that are assigned to you at the door when you walk in by the pastor or the ushers or the greeters. These are responsibilities that God himself assigns to you. This is your role in the body. And that's point three. Serve the body faithfully. Serve the body faithfully. Now look at verses six to eight. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if serving in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now in the time that we have, I'm not going to walk through each of those gifts uh, in terms of defining them. Nor do I think, at least for our purposes today, it's necessary because the point is to identify two realities here. First, God gives to each member a unique measure of of gifting by his grace. That's what Paul says there at the beginning. We each have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So God gives to everyone a unique measure of gifting by his grace. And therefore, second, serve the body in proportion to your gift. That's really what Paul is getting at here. Yes, he lists a number of gifts, but his only point is to say, whatever your gift is, serve the body faithfully according to that gift. That's the point. Uh, Consider the first point here. God gives to everyone a unique measure of gifting by his grace. Notice how he says it there. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You know, it's, it's important to remember that God doesn't need us, right? God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Paul put it this way in Acts 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So God doesn't need us to serve him. He's not waiting for us to get up and come and you know, uh, fan him with something or feed him or anything. He, he doesn't need us. He has angels, right? But he doesn't need angels either. If he wants something to be done, he can just speak it and accomplish whatever his desire is. 
And yet, though we are weak and insufficient and incompetent, God chooses to use us to accomplish his will. That is a remarkable thing. God could speak and accomplish anything he wants. That would be the most efficient way for him to do anything. He certainly did it in Genesis 1. But he's not, that's not how he works. That's not his normal method of accomplishing his purposes. His normal method is to take you and I, weak, beggarly, incompetent, insufficient sinners, to accomplish his pur- purposes. Now, why does he do that? He does that to show his power through us. That he can use such cracked vessels as us and accomplish his purposes. And so because we are weak and insufficient and incompetent, God supplies us with unique gifts of grace. And each one of us receives a different measure of that grace, which results in different levels and combinations of gifts. It would be enough for God to save us, for us to just be able to enjoy and relish in the salvation that we have in Christ. It would be enough to be rescued from hell and to spend eternity in the glorious presence of Almighty God. But to magnify His grace even further, God bestows upon us gifts by which we are to serve Him by serving the body of Christ. And so that's the first thing. God gives every believer a unique measure of gifting by His grace. And out of that comes our duty to use that gift to further His purposes in this world. Like the slaves who the master gave a sum of money to invest in while he was gone, we are to be good stewards of the gifts that God gives to us. Now, what are those gifts? When you put the four passages on spiritual gifts together, you can compile a list of about 20 different named gifts. But all of the passages are different. All of the lists in those four different passages are different. Some passages contain, excuse me, all the passages contain unique elements that aren't found in other gifts. Uh, All the lists overlap to some degree. All of the lists are put in different order. So if you think about it, as, as the Holy Spirit is inspiring his scripture to be put out, he is not intent on giving the church a full and complete list of all the gifts. That would indicate that he is less interested than we are in us doing uh, activities to try and figure out what is my spiritual gift. Because what we tend to do is we think, okay, let me take a survey. And once I figure out my spiritual gift, I'm going to do that one thing the rest of my life. And I can't do anything else because that's not my spiritual gift. I, I have to focus on this one thing. But that's not at all how the gifts work. And I think we can understand this when we think about the body analogy. What does a hand do? A hand uh, lifts food to the mouth. Uh, It brushes teeth, hopefully. (laughs) It pushes a lawnmower. Uh, It can hammer nails. It can greet people. It can play music. And we could go on and on with all the different kinds of things that a hand does. Some hands are particularly good at playing an instrument. Other hands are really good at sewing or woodworking, or a host of other things? Or what is a mouth good for? Well, it's certainly good for speaking. It's good for eating. You can breathe through your mouth. 
You can blow balloons with your mouth. And again, we could go on and on with all the different things that you can do with your mouth. Some mouths can produce a beautiful sound in singing and some have a good radio voice or some are particularly good at offering comfort in difficult times. The point is, each body part has a great variety of uses. And from person to person, there are strengths and weaknesses within a larger array of uses. But even those who are weak in one area and strong in another area are still responsible to fulfill all the functioning uh, within those abilities. I mean, you and I might not be the right ones to stand up on the platform and sing into a microphone. But when we join our voices with the congregational choir, that is a beautiful sound. So you do not have a singular spiritual ability that you are supposed to discover and then do that one thing the rest of your life. God has made you with your background, your experience, your education, all of who you are, incorporating all of that, and then mixed in to those things, the, the spiritual abilities he's given you upon salvation, which you didn't have as an unbeliever. I mean, there are those who had a dramatic change in their life when they got saved. There's one pastor that I know who, prior to salvation, he was just a total jock, you know, fully into sports, good at everything, couldn't care less about studying. And then God saved him, and his entire disposition changed. He didn't have any interest in sports anymore. He loved the Word of God, and that, he, that led him to become a pastor as he was called into ministry. Now, that change might not be as dramatic for you, but the point is you are who you are by the grace of God. And you have the ability to serve the body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit as an act of worship to God in a way that only you can. No one else can serve the body like you can. When you look at this list in verses 6 to 8, you can see that these are not skills like playing guitar or construction or accounting skills. Rather, these are functions in the body. Bodily functions, of course, are things like eating and breathing and walking and speaking. Functions in Christ's body are things like preaching or serving or counseling or teaching or praying or contributing resources or leadership or administration or mercy ministry. All of these things can be accomplished with a variety of individual gifts by the people who do them. So, how do you find out your functioning in the body? Well, I would submit to you that it's the same way that a baby figures out how to function in life. No baby is born walking and talking and able to hold a spoon. It takes months of effort and practice and development. You know, they, they need to develop the muscles and the, the fine motor skills. And it takes time of listening to talking and then starting to make sounds and eventually refining those sounds into words. And then eventually they are able to do things that they couldn't do before. And so it is for us that as we function in the body of Christ, it may take time for us to develop uh, and, and come to fruition the gifts that God has given to us. But the way we go about that process is by getting involved and engaged and looking for opportunities to practice. One of my old pastors used to say, rather than thinking about spiritual gifts, think about spiritual opportunities. Just look for the needs that are out there and seek to meet them. 
And this doesn't necessarily mean wait for Pastor Lynn or the deacons to say, hey, we have this need over here. Certainly do that. Look out for those things. But look around. Look at the people who are around you. Engage in relationship. Have conversations where you get into what is going on in this person's life. How can I encourage them? How can I be a support to them? How can I minister to them? And then over time, you will find that the Spirit will make it clear to you, man, I'm really good at encouraging people, or I'm really good at comforting people, or I'm really... I really enjoy meeting people's needs. I'm a, I'm a giver. I love to give. That gives me joy. And then other people will, will tell you, no, you're really good at this or that. So function in the body. Paul told Tim- Timothy after years of ministry together, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timothy had a gift, but he needed to fan it into flame. He had, had to put it into practice. So can I encourage you in the same way? Fan into flame the gift that you have. You may not know precisely what it is, but that's okay. Just start functioning in the body. Get engaged, get involved, get into the lives of other people. Allow them to get into your life and you will begin to discover how God has graced you in a unique way. Now in closing, I want to finish our time by coming back to the point that I only briefly mentioned that receiving our gifts... And using our gifts should ultimately be for the glory of God. The gifts of the Spirit are indeed intended for the benefit of the body. But if we limit our thinking to only how can I benefit other people, there will be two problems that that arise from that. First, we will aim to please men and not God. And as a result of that, we will limit our involvement in our ministry to those times when we can perceive that we're going to actually be of some kind of help. And a second danger is that we will be tempted to take glory to ourselves when people express appreciation for how we've ministered to them. Consider the first danger just briefly. If we're not aiming to glorify God in the exercise of our gifts, if we're not intentionally and purposefully thinking, God, help me to glorify you as I minister to this person, we will be tempted to only exercise our gifts when we perceive they will be, excuse me, most manifestly useful. And we will withhold the exercise of our gifts when we don't think they will be all that useful. In other words, we'll be looking at others to determine whether or not we want to get involved. Is someone going to notice me? Do they think that I could be helpful here? Can I anticipate visible fruit from whatever efforts I'm, I might possibly put forth? Those kinds of thoughts betray an underlying motive that I want to gauge my success to determine if it will be worth the effort to serve. But if our aim is first to glorify God, we will be more concerned with what God sees and whether God approves of my service. And so it doesn't matter if anyone else sees what I do. It doesn't matter if I see or perceive manifest fruit from my efforts. I know that God sees, God knows, and God rewards in heaven. And so it's okay if no one else sees or if if I don't perceive any visible fruit from it. The second danger of not aiming to glorify God in our service is that we will be tempted to rob God of his glory and take it for ourselves as we see fruit and as people express appreciation to us. 
You know, it's a powerful experience to realize that something you've done has been a, a, a help and a blessing and a, has had an impact on someone else's life. Whether it's a word that you've spoken or a deed that you've done, maybe a song that you've sung, to hear that you made a difference in someone else's life gives joy and satisfaction. And if we're not careful, we can begin to crave that experience and serve longing for the praise of men and taking it to ourselves. And what other people perceive as sacrificial service, man, they're really doing a lot here. They're, they're really faithful. They're, they're, every time they're in church, every time I'm in church, I see them ministering. They, they perceive that as sacrificial service, but in truth, it's, it can be idolatry as we're just seeking to glorify ourselves. That's the danger. But if our aim is to first glorify God, we will recognize that any good fruit that comes from anything that I do it is the fruit, it is the result of God working in and through me. Whatever role we've played is the grace of God at work in this situation. And so expressions of appreciation or manifest fruit that we see leads us to give praise and worship to God because that is his work in and through us. So as we serve, whether it's as an elder or as a deacon or in any function that we do in the body of Christ, aim to glorify God. aiming to glorify God is the only way to be of real benefit to others because otherwise we'll just be seeking glory for ourselves. So as you think about your role in the church, as you think about the place that you have in this church, whether you're a young teenager, whether you're single or married, whether you're older, no matter what your capacities are, no matter what your schedule allows, think rightly about yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself, but think soberly, think seriously. Recognize that God does have a purpose and a function for you in the body of Christ. Think rightly also about the church, that we have been unified in Christ together by virtue of our salvation. We are one body in Christ, but we're also diverse. We have diverse gifts and abilities. And then also use your gifts to the glory of God. Make it your aim to please Christ because of what he's done for you, that he has saved you. Your life is no longer your own. You are now to live as a sacrifice to Christ who gave his life for you.